0: (laughs) Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to The Hack Podcast. What do you think about dynamic pricing? Do you know what that means? It's when you go to book something and it's one price, and then down the track, maybe a few months later, maybe even just a few hours later, you look and it's a lot more expensive. We've been dealing with it for years when booking airfares, right? But you're going to be noticing it a lot more now, even when you're buying tickets to things like music festivals. We'll be getting into that later. Also, Queensland's launching a parliamentary inquiry into vaping. We're going to tell you what's going on there. First, though...
1: (laughs) They take the bell in the final of the men's 800 metres. Peter Ball, whose family moved from Sudan to Australia for a better life, for a new life.
2: The 800 metres runner was suspended by Sport Integrity Australia in January after returning a positive result for the banned
0: substance EPO. To accuse
3: me for that and to give me no proof was just unfair.
0: On Triple J. Australia's highest profile track athlete, Peter Ball, has been in the headlines a lot this year. On the back of huge sporting success, he was named WA's Young Australian of the Year, then he was up for the big national award. But everything took a turn in January when he was provisionally suspended after failing an out-of-competition drug test. His A sample came back positive for the banned substance EPO. But then last month, it was revealed the B sample didn't match the A sample, and so the provisional suspension was lifted. Well, now Peter Bowl's lawyers are demanding that Sporting Integrity Australia drop its doping investigation. They're saying all the evidence shows that Peter Bowles was never a drug cheat, And a lot of people in the sporting world are furious. One journalist is even calling for a Senate inquiry into this whole investigation. Look, we did ask Peter Boll if he'd like to come on Hack. He wasn't available. It's obviously a full-on time for him. We also asked Sporting Integrity Australia if they wanted to come on, but they're not making any comment at this stage. We do have someone, though, who knows this case well, Kieran Pender. He's a sports journalist with Guardian Australia. He's been covering this story for a while. Hey, Kieran, thanks for coming on Hack. A pleasure to be here. A lot's happened in the past few months. We've now got Peter Bowles' lawyers demanding this investigation be dropped. What's prompted this latest outrage from his lawyers? It's some other independent tests that have happened, right?
3: So, this case has been a real saga. We first saw Peter Bowles, the Olympic hero, test positive for a synthetic EPO, which is a performance enhancing drug, in January. Then in February, the B sample returned an atypical finding. So the the suspension was lifted, uh, but the investigation continued. And then today uh, it came out first from the nine newspapers and then I independently confirmed for The Guardian that uh, Bowles' lawyers had written to Sport Integrity Australia, the investigative body, and provided them with two independent reports from uh, independent laboratories that are heavily critical of the prior uh, testing of Bowl and both say that in the samples, um, in the A sample and the B sample, there is no uh, a synthetic EPO. There's no performance enhancing drug. So it really shines a light on this case and raises major questions about what's happening.
0: Yeah, it sure does. This sounds like really damning stuff that's come from these independent tests. So what are Peter Bowl's lawyers uh, calling for?
3: But they're calling for Sport Integrity Australia to drop the investigation, clear Peter's name uh, and move on. Um, But I've been speaking to some experts in the anti-doping field and they have said that if these independent reports are are verified, then it will have global implications for anti-doping. The reports really cast doubt on the quality of uh, the anti-doping testing that was done firstly at, at an Australian government laboratory and then at a at the B sample was tested overseas. And these two independent reports by very distinguished experts in the field, uh, a Canadian expert and then a group of four Norwegian experts, both say there's just no evidence in, in the A or B sample for EPO and that uh, BOL has been totally wronged. For people who
0: aren't across all of this, how do the A sample and the B sample work?
3: What does that mean? So it's a bit of a complex testing regime, but basically, you know, athletes regularly give urine samples in competition and out of competition testing to test for prohibited substances, such as uh, performance enhancing substances. Uh, that's then tested and it, it's split into two samples, an A sample and a B sample. And if, if you test positive for the A sample, then the B sample is automatically tested to confirm if they're the same. So, you know, if you test positive, if there's a positive substance, you'll test positive the first time, it'll be retested. The second sample will be the same. The, the B samples are back up, And it's just in this case, there's been such a strange series of events where you had a positive A sample, the B sample wasn't negative, but it was atypical. And then you've got these independent experts looking at all that and saying, this is a total mess. They've really botched it. And, you know, this needs to be fixed. And so Bowles' lawyers have come out really strongly today and said, you know, this and needs to be rectified ASAP because it's it's had a huge impact on Bowl and his reputation. The Australian National Track and Field Championships are in Brisbane starting next Monday and Bowl won't be there because he only returned to training very recently. So he won't be able to compete in that you know, it's tarnished his reputation, even if he's ultimately vindicated. Um, this has had a major impact on him. And these two independent reports raise real questions about the quality of the testing going on in Australia.
4: Well,
0: like I said before, we did ask if Peter Bowl wanted to come on hack. Uh, he wasn't available. It's been a rough few months for him. Has he been saying much in these past few weeks about the allegations, about his, you know, stance on all this?
3: He came out today and said that he didn't intend to sue Sport Integrity Australia, but he hoped that this would be a learning experience for them. Hopefully, he'll be able to get back on track. So, you know, his big next goal, uh, having performed really well at the Tokyo Olympics and then uh, won a medal at the Commonwealth Games, his next big goal is the Paris Olympics, which are not until midway through next year. So he's got time to get back on track. But as you say, the the impact this has had on him, and it, it's it's a really tricky case, as with all of these anti-doping cases, in that, of course, You know, we want to catch dopers. We want to catch people who are cheating the system. But with something like EPO, which is naturally produced by your body and distinguishing in a laboratory between a natural EPO, which we all have, and artificial EPO, which is a performance-enhancing a substance is really tricky. And it looks as if, if these two independent reports are accurate, the laboratory is stuffed up.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask, are there issues with how we are testing for EPO? Is there controversy there? Is there disagreement on how that whole process happens?
3: There's a lot of controversy within the academic world about the way in which EPO is tested. There's a few different testing methodologies And there have been some academics saying that the the primary testing methodology is too subjective. So it relies on a sort of a visual analysis of uh, the intensity of substances on a testing band. Um, You know, I'm not a scientist myself, so I don't claim to be an expert here, but there are a number of experts saying that methodology is too subjective. It leaves too much for interpretation and people like uh, Peter Bowl are suffering as a result. What is EPO? Sure. So EPO is a hormone, comes from the kidneys. Uh, we all have it in our body. It's naturally occurring. But uh, athletes who want to dope, who want to um, enhance their performance, can take an, a synthetic version of EPO uh, and sort of additional EPO that uh, improves recovery and enhances performance. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Guardian
0: Australia sports journalist Kieran Pender about the latest developments in the Peter Bowles story, his lawyers calling for a doping investigation to be dropped after some independent research. Kieran, do you think the way this case has been handled says a lot about how doping allegations in Australian sport are treated more broadly? Like, there is a lot of discussion often about the fact that athletes are often presumed guilty until proven innocent.
3: I think this case has raised some real questions about the Australian anti-doping regime. We were in the process of moving to a more sophisticated regime with the establishment of Sport Integrity Australia in recent years and this saga, particularly if these two independent r- reports are confirmed, will really rock SIA and the government uh, anti-doping laboratory. Uh, one of the criticisms in this case so far from Bowl and BOL supporters has been the fact that the positive test became public uh, initially so there've been a lot of criticism saying until the B sample was tested this shouldn't have become public uh, I, I think there's different views there some people who say the transparency is important Bowl would have automatically been suspended from competition so there's some who say well it would have been obvious something was up it's important to be transparent and others who say well um, you know he should be given the benefit of the doubt until both are tested but i think all of that aside, these independent reports, if verified, raise huge questions about the integrity of the system. And you know, I can't—we can't understate the impact this has all had on Bol in the last few months. And if these reports are, are verified, then that has all been due to poor science rather than him uh, uh, being a drug cheat.
0: Well, I guess there are other athletes uh, who've faced doping allegations in the past and who've spoken quite openly, some recently, about the impact it's had on them. How's this going to play out, Kieran? Like, What's likely to happen
3: now? I think we're waiting for SIA to respond for Integrity Australia. I've been to them for comment. I've been to uh, the uh, government anti-doping laboratory for comment. I haven't heard back from either of them, so we'll just have to wait and see. They have said previously the investigation is continuing. If the independent reports are to be believed, presumably that investigation will be dropped and Bowe will return to competition and, and get on with his life. But as I said, I think this will really reflect uh, uh, reflects poorly on the anti-doping regime in Australia, and we'll we'll see a lot more attention paid to how these things are. Dealt with, um, b- because it's so important. It goes to the fabric of sport. It goes to us being able to watch sport and know that people are competing fairly. And so I think, you know, at first, you know, Peter Bowles such a national hero. He did so well in Tokyo. He's such a charismatic individual. He's got such an amazing story. We all wanted to believe that this was a uh, this was just a bad dream. Um, but when he came out and said, you know, I'm innocent, it was hard to believe that because the data shows that so many, you know, when you test positive, the number of cases that actually are false positives are so few. But in this case, it looks as if he was he was correct and that he was innocent. And this has just been botched. And as I said, I think that'll lead to big questions about the, the integrity of the wider Australian anti-doping system. Look, it's a huge story. A lot of people have a lot of thoughts
0: on it. We appreciate you keeping us across it. Guardian Australia sports journalist, Kieran Pender, thanks very much for joining us on Hack. A pleasure. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, and we'll keep you across all the updates with this one. Make sure you know what's going on. Hack. I didn't think of myself as a smoker. The vaping just makes it seem like it's nothing. But I couldn't go longer than 10, 15 minutes without hitting
4: it. On Triple J.
0: Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about vaping because it's a big part of so many young Australians' lives. Vapes are everywhere. We know. We have experts on hack saying vapes are undoing decades of good work to reduce smoking rates. There are other people out there that say vaping's helped them get off cigarettes. Look, nicotine vapes might be illegal without a prescription, but it's not stopping kids from getting hold of them. We know that. Like, we're talking primary school age here. Maybe you've got a little brother or sister that you've caught vaping and it's, you know, freaked you out or you're addicted yourself. Let me know. You can message in 0439 757 The Queensland government is the latest to turn its attention to vaping. It's launching a full parliamentary inquiry into it. Jess Norton has more. <laughs>
4: Meeting in a car filled with adults in a random agreed to location is not uncommon for Queensland teenagers looking to purchase vapes.
5: Usually it would just be one of your mates would like introduce you to a guy or he would send you a account on Snapchat, message that account and say, hey, what are you selling? And then yeah, I'd be like, oh, this, this, and this. Uh, it was all online.
4: This is high school student Eamon. He says he's been vaping since he was around 12 or 13 years of age.
5: So you would just like message a guy and then you would go meet up somewhere. He would usually just hand it to you out the car and that will be it. It a sketchy as because oh, you're what, 12, 13 walking up to a bloke that's oh, 20, 25 with a couple of his mates in the car too.
4: Videos on social media play a major role in attracting young people to vape and Eamon says a big reason he and his mates do it is that it's cool.
5: Other than just being able to inhale or exhale smoke they want to be able to like blow rings or like be able to blow it out of their mouth and suck it back up through their nose. Being able to do those cool tricks and like trying to impress other people that was like one of the um satisfying things about it.
4: Whilst for others, including Jack, it was the flavours and the headspin that kept him vaping.
5: I think it was cherry ice. That was my first time trying it, I had a cherry ice vape. First time it was like, made me sick, but at the same time it like, gave me a headspin, like my first headspin. It's just so tempting because like the taste of it, and it tastes really sweet, so I just kept trying it and trying it till you got like used to it.
4: Jack saw, with his own eyes, the health impacts that vaping can have on his body and his fellow classmates.
3: Honestly, because, like, I'm a sporty person and, like, footy and basketball, it's just hard to get into it because I see my mates struggle, like, to run, like, a lap around the oval.
4: Both Eamon and Jack got caught by their parents and they've now quit. Mostly. But the reality is, vaping is a growing trend amongst school students.
5: I'll say like the popular groups, every single kid. But if it was just like a random selection of students in the school, well, we have about 2,000 kids in the school. So I'd say every one in 10 have used it. And then one every one in like 20, 30 would be using it like every single day. I feel like they know that's bad for your lungs and everything, but Yeah, just get it a little bit more jittery.
0: I think it's important that we understand what's inside these things and actually educate people as
4: to the harmful effects. So now in Queensland, this issue will be looked at through a parliamentary inquiry. But what exactly is that and what do they aim to achieve? Well, the inquiry will involve community meetings across the state and will investigate the risks of vaping and what schools are currently doing in this space. This is Aaron Harper. He's a state member in North Queensland, and he will chair the health committee looking into this.
3: Uh, that inquiry will travel
0: throughout the uh, length and breadth uh, of Queensland, hear from people uh, about the effects of vaping, particularly to young people, and we'll also do some more work with the federal government to stop them coming in uh, from an import point of view. So you know, there's a bit of work ahead for us to do. We'll look to table the report at the end of August uh, in the Parliament.
4: So when that final report is ready in August, it'll make recommendations, like changes to the industry practices or even legislation. For Eamon and Jack, they regret vaping, especially at such a young age. They wish they knew the dangers and hope that this inquiry will shed some of the light on the impacts it has on young people.
3: Honestly, I reckon to wait when you're old are, and, like, if you start now, it's just going to affect your heaps when you're like in a couple of months. And, like, it'll just make it harder for you to do stuff. Hack on Triple J.
0: Jess Norton with that story. And yeah, we've got quite a few messages coming through on this one. Georgina from NAM says long term smoker, short term vapor. Vaping's definitely helped me quit smoking. But from April 1st, I'm quitting both. Not a joke. No vape joke, she says. Another person says, I work with people who are addicted to vapes and, you know, some of them can't go 15 seconds without smoking a vape. Let's go to another person. Sam's called in from Newcastle. Hey, Sam, are you vape or you did vape. What's been your experience?
5: Yeah, so I've recently started trying to quit, but um, I started probably a year and a half ago and even like, I play soccer and just being, watching my fitness just, absolutely drop has been horrendous like
0: it's crazy and that's what we're just hearing there like um lots of like really young people still in like you know primary school going into high school saying yeah i can't even run anymore i can't do sport anymore so you notice that too
1: yeah i
5: used to play for two teams on the same day now i can't even finish one game yeah
0: Yeah, that's crazy stuff. Look, Sam, thanks um, for for sharing that with us. Good luck with the journey giving up vaping. A lot of people, you know, have a bit of a tough time giving up. I'm sure you're going to be right across it and we're going to keep all of you right across this Queensland Parliamentary Inquiry. We'll tell you what comes out of that one as well. If it's a choice between seeing new music and paying the bills, I'm going to have to pay the bills. On Triple J. Yeah, how much money are you spending on tickets to gigs? Maybe a lot less these days with the cost of everything. You know how hard it can be to get hold of spots to really big events, like the international acts, the huge festivals. But what about the smaller ones? Because you might have seen lately a few of those boutique kind of festivals have been pleading with people to buy tickets early, not to leave it to the last minute. And that's something a lot of us probably do when we know something's not going to sell out quickly. You think, oh, yeah, I'll grab it later when I've got a bit more cash or maybe just because you're lazy. But it's actually meaning heaps of events can't end up going ahead because the people putting it on just don't have the money to do it. Everyone's leaving it too late to the last minute to buy their tickets. In a bit, we're going to be speaking to an expert about the way we're buying, how it's changing, the way tickets are priced, how that's changing. But first, here's Kimberly Price.
2: So last year's festival. Talk us through how ticket sales looked in 2022 compared to previous years?
5: A lot worse. We sold less than half of what we would have in a previous year.
2: Jaden Bath runs Lockhart Music Festival in Southwest Victoria. It's a small festival that's been going for three years with 1,500 revellers in 2022. Despite increasing festival capacity, Jayden says there was a lot more room to grow, but that didn't happen because a lot of people didn't buy tickets when they were first released.
5: We end up getting close to 75%, but on opening day, you see a majority of your sales. We hit 50% of what we had done in a previous opening day.
2: There has been a significant rise in walk-ups to festivals and gigs, a trend ticket sellers aren't used to.
5: I helped organise a gig at Northcote Social Club, and prior to the day of, we'd sold less than 100 tickets. Then we had 120 walk-ups, which is just insane.
2: While Lockhart did go ahead in its first year back post-pandemic, some festivals haven't been so lucky. Boutique festivals have been pleading with music fans on social media to buy tickets as soon as they can to make sure they get the minimum sales they need to go ahead. And for Chincia, her rural Victorian festival had to fold this year.
0: We never actually really realize what was going
2: on until the very last minute. A week out from the New Year's festival, Chinzia and her team had to pull the pin on the fourth instalment of their event because they hadn't sold enough tickets.
5: You're not going to meet the spending that you need to meet. It also means that the feel
2: and the look and everything that you've planned can't go ahead. But the cancelling of the festival came as a massive surprise to Chinzia and her team, as the previous year was a hit. We sold out months <sighs> before our event and that was based off, you know, before we even put a lineup out and did a number of things which, you know, we'd never did any advertising. Oliver Hall is one of the researchers and authors behind All Options Open, a report supported by companies Bolster and Tixel, which has looked into the changing ticket sales climate. He says while there's many reports of ticket sales going up, they're for the big events like Ed Sheeran and Harry Styles. But smaller boutique festivals like the ones Jaden and Chinzia run are suffering.
3: Tickets as a whole are probably up. Like, we probably surpassed where we were in 2019, but the increase in ticket sales isn't being evenly distributed across all providers.
2: Through his research, Oliver found 71% of festival goers had changed the way they purchased tickets following the pandemic, and 84% said they were more likely to purchase tickets if they knew they could resell them easily.
3: We're now in this kind of like spiral right now where Consumers are confident they can hold out longer. And then without concrete sales, event organisers just have no idea how something's going to sell.
2: And with that, people don't have the spare cash to be forking out on festivals and gigs like they used to.
1: Consumers
3: said they spend around $800 a year on events and that figure was closer to about $1,000 a year for 18 to 30-year-olds. But if you consider that a, a major festival is about $400 a pop now and then a ticket to a major headliner is about $300 now, that's pretty much a whole budget.
2: And for Oliver and festival directors like Jaden and Shinzia, there is no clear answer to ensure small festivals can survive. I don't know what the answer is. If you want something to go ahead... Show your
5: support
0: from the start. Tell your friends, encourage people to buy tickets. Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price with that story. Got some messages coming through. Someone says going to a gig should be a spur of the moment thing, not a six-month in advance thing. Yeah, I know. It's unfortunate for a lot of people who like to make a decision at the last minute, end up paying a lot more. Like Amanda in Wollongong. I forgot in the Moo tickets went on sale. A week later, tickets were 60 bucks more. So why does that happen? Well, it's about something called dynamic pricing. You might have heard of it. It's a bit controversial. I want to get into it with an expert now. Rob Nichols is an associate professor in regulation, governance at UNSW, and he's with us now. G'day, Rob. Thanks for coming on Hack. No worries. Great to be here. People might have noticed some events have started bringing in dynamic pricing, music festivals, those sorts of things. There's a lot of talk about it. Can you
1: explain simply what it is? Yeah, basically it says that the price changes as the demand changes. So for example, for the uh, organizer that wants to get a large number of tickets pre-sold to see if they can uh, go ahead with the festival, well, offer them at a lower price at the beginning, but be very clear, the price will go up over time. It's the way that the airlines uh, do it. That is you fill the plane, Uh, early on. But as you get closer and closer to the actual event date, the price goes up. And so those walk-ups that that we just heard about might expect to pay a bit more, quite a bit more than if they book early. Okay. So are there any advantages to selling this way for the consumer at all? Well, for the consumer who can plan ahead, uh, then yeah, great. You're going to be able to get tickets at a lower price than you would if you just decide to rock up on the night. On the other hand, it also means that the certainty for the, uh, for the producers of the, of the festival or of the concert, because they know they can go ahead because they've reached that minimum number of people who've already committed to be along.
0: Can you explain, Rob, another thing? Like you mentioned the airlines before and how we've been seeing this for years, which is true. How does it work when two people book the same tickets at the same time, but there are two different prices? What's going on there?
1: Well, some of that is dynamic pricing. So it may be that the price goes up immediately after the person sitting next to you, who always, in my case, gets a cheaper price, (laughs) has just bought their ticket. But some of it's also uh, a little bit of use of uh, the way that you've been searching. So if you've been searching for a particular date on a particular airline at a particular time, the cookies that have been associated with that are building up and say, well, Dave really needs to catch the the two o'clock flight. Uh, Rob said any time during the day, and you might end up with a higher price because that's precisely the flight you want. And I might get a lower price because, you know, I was flexible. I don't care when it is. And I prefer that day, but I could even go the day before or the day after. So you have a a slightly higher propensity to pay for the particular flight. So,
0: Robert, we're going to be seeing more of this dynamic prices as the years go on. Like, Is it something that we've seen a lot of overseas that Australia is starting to adapt to
1: more now? Well, we've seen it overseas and and here in things like ride shares, where that surge pricing, which is always when you really want to get into a ride share, is a form of dynamic pricing. Sometimes it works the other way. So Amazon um, has price changes, thousands and thousands of price changes each day, and some of those lead to good outcomes for consumers. But increasingly, especially for businesses like concert operators that actually really need to know, am I going to get to the minimum to put this event on? They're more likely to adopt dynamic pricing than other businesses. Interesting, right, okay.
0: And just quickly, we've only got 30 seconds left, but what's against the law and what's not? Like, um,
1: you know, what can companies do and what can't they do? Okay, So price discrimination, I have to pay more than you is legal in Australia. But discrimination on other grounds is not legal. So the risk that anybody who's got dynamic pricing does, engages in, is that their price discrimination will actually be gender discrimination or race discrimination or even age discrimination. So businesses have to be very careful about using uh, personalised pricing because it might not be the best outcome for the consumer Or for the
0: business. Interesting. And I guess there's lots of reputational damage that could happen there. Rob Nichols from UNSW, really appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Dave. We've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, I run a small music festival down here in Tassie. Slow ticket sales can be like torture. So much on the line. That's from Harry. Another person says, a big reason people buy late for festivals is the fact that too many acts are pulling out. Pisses me off. I can understand why. Another person, I've seen festivals trying to plan a year in advance. I personally am not in the position to pay 400 bucks for an event a year in advance. Would rather spend that on something else. And someone else says event organisers should not whinge that they can't sell tickets. They should look at why they aren't selling tickets.
2: Hack on Triple J.
0: And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.